Hey everyone, this is Chris Walker and welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This episode features an audio recording of an event I did with Justin Welsh in LA back in February. I hope you enjoy it. Ready to get started? Yeah, I'm, I'm Justin, by the way. My name's Justin Welsh. Uh, I'm the former SVP of sales at a company right down on 2nd Street in Wilshire called Patient Pop. And I uh, was a sub 10 employee, was hired on as the VP of sales at just one salesperson. And over four and a half years, grew the business to just north of 50 million in recurring revenue. And prior to that, I was a sub 10 employee at a company called ZocDoc, which I was there for five years as well. And it went from, uh, you know, couple of people in a dorm room basically to being a $2 billion company and I held multiple leadership roles there. Um, my goal tonight is just to share what worked for me and I think what worked for me won't be what works for everyone and, and vice versa and hopefully I can share a few things along with Chris that will, will resonate with the group and will help you guys discover some new ways to, to make sales or to generate leads through marketing. So looking forward to it. And my name is Chris Walker. I've run um I've run marketing and demand gen at several venture-backed companies, um, most notably a company called Vapotherm. I was there for two years, and while I was there, grew it um, from an entirely sales-driven, 100% outbound company at $28 million to when I left, it was $45 million in, in revenue, and 33% of that was coming from marketing-sourced opportunities, mainly through content and social. And so that's where I, I really figured out the model. I replicated it at a smaller sub-2 million ARR startup, and then started doing it with other companies. So right now I work with 11, um, 11 B2B SaaS companies, kind of in a similar space as some of the people here, um, and continue to refine and add layers to the model that we run from a marketing standpoint. So I'll probably serve more on the marketing side, although from a marketing standpoint and looking more at like a revenue engine now, there's like a lot of overlap and things like that. So there's maybe some things that I can weigh in on. Um, so yeah, the uh, my objective tonight is to share what's worked for me 100% to provide value, answer questions, do whatever I can to help you all be successful. So, so let's get started. Cool. Uh, so the place I wanted to, to start is uh, a way to set the stage and have Justin answer this, which is, so I'm, I'm relatively young, and actually you are, you are too. Um, and so when I, when I've, as I've entered, I've actually kind of seen this weird progression um, in B2B from like 2010 to 2000 to 2020, um, shifting from a, a lot more sales-led to now it's, it was, it's product-led, marketing-led for the most part, um, but I see a lot of companies continuing to, to continue with the model in two, that was in 2010. And so what do you think has, has changed? What, what would you do differently if you were building a company in 2020 from scratch versus 2010? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've, been, I've been fortunate enough I got into SaaS in 2010, and uh, I was, again, like a sub-10 employee at what would uh, go on to be a really big business. And so as I think back to like 2009, early 2010, I think about like pre-HubSpot, right? HubSpot, it would be five years before like HubSpot would IPO and like take what was essentially this really popular model of driving inbound leads to grow businesses. And I think one thing that people forget as well 
you know, back in 2009, 2010, as we were still one to two years away from Aaron Ross writing books like Predictable Revenue. So there was no specialization at that point in time either. Uh, really, it was happening, you know, internally at Salesforce and a few other companies. And so um, companies back then, SaaS, when I joined them, like ZocDoc, uh, they didn't have this specialization or inbound leads. So their whole model for going to market was hiring salespeople. It was just hiring sales headcount and putting that headcount in their business and having that headcount uh, prospect and close business. And I can recall like when the book came out that Aaron wrote in 2011, everybody at the company reading it, Jamie, you were probably there, and suddenly the next day we had SDRs. And that was really interesting because none of us had ever heard of like being supported by someone else. And you know, five years later when I joined Patient Pop, so that would have been 2015, so a, a good middle ground, you know, hyper specialization was, was really popular. And so you had LDRs, SDRs, BDRs, AEs, mid-market AEs, you had a, a role for, for every type of sort of specialized piece. Um, but even then, it felt like inbound marketing and digital marketing was sort of in its infancy. Um, and you know, right then, it was also grow growth at all costs. So when we started at Patient Pop, like the mantra was growth at all costs. Like we spent a lot of money to grow really, really quickly. And as I think about now, um, to me, specialization is still there, but maybe not quite as hyper specialized. And digital demand like generation has taken over as where I would start if I was uh, scaling a business today. Because to me, it's it's the most as you tinker with, with it can become the most efficient channel once you figure out your your cost per leads. And, and stuff like that. Um, but that's sort of how the landscape to me has changed. And if I were to rebuild, I would start with marketing before sales. And I think that always used to be sales before marketing. And today I would be a, a very much marketing before sales guy. And I would, I would place AEs and salespeople into your organization from a capacity perspective. So I would look to see as leads grew over time, what kind of AEs could I place in based on that capacity? And I would grow my headcount on a capacity driven uh, model. And then I would probably take a look um, you know, over the course of time to try and model out how our demand generation might start to plateau over time. And what we did really well at PatientPod is we got about 18 months ahead of where we thought our demand generation might plateau and started looking at further channels and avenues for growth. So building outbound models, um, forming strategic partnerships, you know, over the course of five years, we went from a 100% self-supported model where we were finding our own deals to very heavy inbound to split 33-33-33 between outbound, inbound, and strategic partner. So, you know, if I were doing it today, I'd, I'd start marketing first and, and build capacity. Mm -hmm. And in order to, to start marketing, I think uh, one thing, especially with really small companies, is that they start to try and go with downstream demand generation, but they don't have product market fit yet. And so that's one like kind of caveat that, that I'd like to place is that, especially because I've, I've consulted with companies that are at 500K ARR, and they don't know who they're selling to, and they don't know how to message or position the product. If you do a bunch of demand gen, it's not gonna work. So first step, product market fit, be able to have a sustainable sales process once you get the leads, and then layer on demand generation. And I entirely agree hire for based on capacity. Um, in the past, it's been hire salespeople to grow. And I've been saying this for four years, it's hire salespeople to support growth. 
which I think is a really interesting way to look at it. Um, yeah, I was um, I was fortunate enough to speak at uh, an event called Saster, which some of you may have attended before. And the guy who runs it is a guy by the name of Jason Lemkin. He's really popular in the SaaS world, and he did a really great job at EchoSign, which was purchased by Adobe. And I got a chance to just meet him in a very weird point in PatientPop's history, where we were at about 25 million in recurring revenue, and I was going out and I was I was uh, trying to generate more through my peer relationship with my marketing person, Jared Jost, and we were saying, like, let's, let's pound the demand generation, let's raise the budget, let's generate as much as we can, and I spoke with Jason about this conundrum of, like, how do I continue to grow really fast um, when the more we spend, we're starting to see some diminishing returns, and he was like, hey, you have to be really prepared to go out and find a new avenue for growth as your demand generation starts to show signs of plateauing, and he said that generally happens around 25, 30 million, so we started building an output sales team like literally the week that I got back from that and it was probably the best thing that we did because it gave us significant new channel for growth mm-hmm so that kind of segues in because one of the promise topics for this um, and something that I, that's actually the first the first thing that I ever saw Justin post about um, I don't know exactly and I'm sure you'll get into the details but it was essentially along the lines of um, you shouldn't have an outbound STR team unless you're selling a product that has 10k ACV or higher. Um, and I thought about that, and I was, I read it, and I was like, wow! I literally just left working with a company that was selling a 2.5k ACV product, heavy out, 100% outbound SDR, and no, like it wasn't working. And I, I could tell the economics weren't there. Like we're paying these people $5,000 a month; they're bringing in $400 MRR a month. It just doesn't make sense. And uh, and so that's the first time I got exposed, and was hoping you could just go a little like a level deeper onto onto when when the SDR AE model is right, aside from ACV, yeah, um, and and then how people could make a choice for that if they were going to build out a sales team. Yeah, Kevin and I were talking about this a little earlier. Like, I think people are looking for like a one size fits all answer when it comes to ASP and SDRs. But like, what is the minimum ASP or ACV that you can have when you have an outbound SDR? program, I don't think there's a real answer because as Kevin and I were chatting, like take two businesses that are that are fu- pretty similar but fundamentally different. Patient pop, we're calling into healthcare providers. You'll be lucky if you talk to you know, 30 a month, if you're lucky, connects from to, to doctors. And Kevin used to work at Snack Nation where he's calling restaurant owners. Or you can look at someone who's calling small business owners where they're generally standing by the phone ready to pick up the phone all day. And so there's a lot of different components that go into it. Um, so you can have a, a lower ACV if you have higher connect rates, more opportunities. Um, but for me, I try and take like a, a paint with a broad brush approach. So I like to think about, on average, what I think SDRs can produce in most SaaS businesses. And for me, what I've seen in most SaaS businesses is SDRs are producing anywhere from 12 to 15 qualified opportunities a month. That's what I'm seeing across a wide spectrum. There are things that produce much higher, there are companies that produce much lower, depending on your ACV and your call points and things like that. And so I was trying to think, you know, based on the average AE performance in a business, what do I expect an AE to close? Again, average across the board, is probably 20%, so one in five. So if you have an SDR doing you know, 15 opportunities and your AE closing three, you know, if you try it, if you try that at 6K, you're doing 18K a month from your, your SDR, you multiply that by 12, you're doing 216K a year. When you factor in gross margins of 80%, you're doing 170K. 
in fully loaded, you're paying your SDR and AE probably 240K together or 250K together. So you're not even at a break even at, at 6K in that, in that example. But for me at, at 10K, if you go out and do the same thing, you generate 360K yearly at 80% gross margins and you generate probably closer to 250. So you've at least reached a break even at 10K. And that's just sort of like my peanut butter back of the napkin math. If your company has higher or lower churn rate, that can change. If your company gets into an account at 3K, but you find that that account spends 50K a year over the next five years because you have incredible expansion revenue, then obviously you can have like a, a lower ACV. So there's not a one size fits all answer, but there was a really cool study done in 2018 by a group called the Bridge Group, which is Trish Bertuzzi. Um, and she's kind of like a, a you know, SDR you know, expert for, for lack of a better word. And what she found after factoring in um, the tenure rate of SDRs, the success rate, the ratio of SDRs to AE, that in order to, if you have a really, really hyper-productive SDR team, you could get away with 4K. If you have an average SDR team, it's gotta be 10K or more on ACV. And if you have a below average SDR team, you're looking at 16K or more in ACV. And that was a study that took a lot of different factors into place, rolled it into one. And so it kind of speaks to what I said in the beginning right around that 10K average. So those two things together kind of tell me that the, the math is starting to check out. This was not on the agenda, but it kind of, uh, I think it's interesting. So, because someone asked the question, and I also want to understand what you think about it. As you're building out marketing and sales, how do you think about it from a budget allocation perspective? So if you have a full commercial budget, let's assume, uh, let's push away account management now, so it's net new logo, yeah. SDRs, AEs, and marketing. What's the, what's the correct percentage allocation of that budget? I think it can change from, from business to business, but the way that I would think about it is try and establish a really rigid percentage of first year ACV attached to sales. So if you've got, you know, 10K first year ACV, you should know exactly what percentage goes to pay your salespeople. And the best way to do that is to build a compensation plan that is not flexible. So a lot of times you build compensation plans that tear up as you, as you sell more. And depending on how your team performs that month, your cost of your percentage of uh, what you pay your salespeople of the total first year ACV could be 17%, it could be 22%, it could be 25%. I have a compensation plan and if there's an email list at the conclusion of this, I'd be happy to send it to you where you can always nail exactly 20% or exactly 25% or exactly 22% of the total, uh, total first year revenue to pay your salespeople. And then essentially you build in the margins that you wanna have on that first year ACV and then you back into the marketing number. So if you, you, you can spend up to 65% of, of that revenue in marketing and that's sort of how I think about it. I always try to pay about 20% uh, uh, sales uh, in the first uh, first year and the rest went to marketing yeah so I was much more heavily leaning towards marketing interesting yeah yeah so like when I the company that I entered into in 2016 spent a total of 29 million dollars on sales and 2.5 million dollars on marketing including headcount large fast-growing well-funded company and inside of the sales it was 19 million on sales, 10 million on success. And so if you just say, look at 19 million sales, net new, heavy outbound, um, and then the AEs around in the field, 
and then 2.5 on the marketing. Inside of the marketing, you have product and comms. So if you split that out, it's actually only about 1.1 million on downstream comms. Inside of that, we're spending 600K on digital ads. Okay, so 600K on digital ads, 19 million on sales. And over time, that 600K is generating 33% of net new logo revenue on two and a half percent or three percent of the overall commercial budget and then you're wondering like what's what are we going to do next and that's when i figured out that that what i was doing was special a lot of people hadn't recognized how special it could be even the people that worked inside of the company didn't recognize how important this was because it completely could, uh, could change your business um and so now that company would not change their percent budget allocation just based on the leadership there. Um, and I've seen most SaaS companies at somewhere between 10 to 30% of the overall budget is going to marketing. Mm. I believe that should be over time somewhere 50 or 60% marketing. I think you could even push it further if you had the right kind of like the right model down. Um, and Unless it's a self-serve, I have not actually, if, if there isn't a higher ACV AE model, I have not seen someone get to that point yet. Um, I'm hoping to, to help someone get there because I really do believe that that's the way to go because over time, your customer acquisition costs are going to go way down. Do I dare ask questions? Yeah, let's do it. Go yeah, for no, it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so I love the marriage of you two up here, and I'm using the word marriage for a reason because the MQL-SQL marriage is... It's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And sitting in a boardroom, an executive room, marketing has to justify the marketing leads and the conversion rate over its sales. How do you create that healthy relationship where you're on the same side when times aren't good to validate that you're converting these leads even when some of them might not be fully qualified? Yeah. Started? I mean, for me, I don't have like a really interesting or like sexy answer to the question other than the fact that MQL, SQL, and SAL all have objective definitions. Like when I've seen this fail um, really badly, and I think at Patient Pop over the course of our, of our company's growth, we struggled with this a little bit, right? Where it was like, is a, is a sales qualified or accepted lead like when it's just they want to buy today? Like that's a, that's a closed one deal, right? Right, so some of them do, but usually what we did was we, we just nailed criteria, right? So for us like um, an SQL had I think four different types of criteria. Uh, it met a certain time threshold, meaning they had set aside a certain amount of time. It was a decision maker by title. If it wasn't the decision maker by title, it was one of these three people and they had an average tenure at the practice of X amount of years or it was a spouse. So we had like very objective criteria on the Yeah, it really was. And so that was how we nailed sort of this objective criteria. And then I think the other thing that I did really well in conjunction with Jared, who is my, my marketing peer, um, was we were both really focused on revenue. And I think, and this may open up a whole other can Let's of worms, but um, most marketers that I've worked with have been leads or MQL focused. And I think that's, I think that's okay. I think a really good marketer can 
figure out a great way to get uh, certain types of MQLs that might ultimately not lead into sales. But Jared was really adamant from the very beginning of our relationship that he wanted to co-own revenue with me. And so that actually, that incentive made it really easy for us to be objectively aligned across MQL, SQL, and SAL. You will have certain people in the industry that say that's a terrible idea. Don't give your marketing person a revenue-based quota. It worked well for us, and I think that we became really aligned because Love of that. Love that. Well, you guys are doing, first of all, kudos, and thank you both. I you have a great, yeah. Well. So, relationship, well, I mean, yeah. we're not going to the next level of this, but a relationship worked really well when you guys are doing well. Yeah, I got I got some more to add on that. So what, what a normal, and there's a lot of different causes to why this will happen, but what a normal SaaS company will do is try and generate as many MQLs as possible. And those MQLs are gonna go to SDRs, and most of them are gonna be content downloads, webinar attendees, trade show attendees, like bullshit lists that they pulled, content syndication. You're getting bonused on that. So they're going to SDRs, the SDRs are following up, their connects are super low, not pushing them through the funnel. The ones that do get pushed through the funnel are gonna close at a very low rate, they're gonna waste AE's time. Um, and so what I've done over time and continue to see this work, mainly because the first company I worked for, I, was, I did not want to send a bullshit lead to the AEs. They were, sorry, they're going directly to the AEs. You're my problem. And I wasn't going to send them a lead and have them send me an email back saying, that person like doesn't even work at a hospital. Like, why are you sending me that person? So I was only sending them people directly fit the ICP. I scanned them myself, made sure they worked at the at the, at the hospital, made sure they had a job title. They filled out a form that said, "I want to talk to your sales rep." So that was the only conversion point I cared about. Anything up until that point, it sat in HubSpot, and I had a filter so it never pushed into Salesforce until they made a sales action. Awesome. And when you do that when those leads convert at 25 to 40%, that's how I found to get the best alignment. Um, when, when every lead you send to sales, they know that they have a super, super high probability of closing them. Yeah, so um, going back to your calculations on SDR, CD, and everything, what are your thoughts? There's, there's another metric you didn't mention. Mm -hmm. Doesn't the stickiness of the product kind of matter like if you're we're doing ninety-five percent? Yes. Totally. Yeah, like there's there's a lot of different calculations that go into it. So if you, the lower your churn rate, obviously the the lower your ACV can be, and also like whether or not you can achieve net negative churn through expansion revenue. So like I mentioned, even if your entry point's three thousand, right? So you have a real low cost product, but you tell me that over the next five years they're going to add on ten thousand dollars worth of uh, cross sell products every year, um, then that actually informs part of your AC your ACV uh, ACV minimal decision. Um, but from like a, a Again, like back in napkin math for me, just looking at first year break even, I look at 10K. Um, but again, it's gonna matter from industry, uh, how you sell your product into your customer base. There's gonna be a lot of things that go into that. Um, but looking for sort of an average, we were trying to figure that out earlier. Like what's the, what's the minimum that we feel really confident about that you can have an SDR and AE program? You commented on something today and I commented, I was like, we gotta talk about that because I thought it was super interesting because I don't I actually don't think companies look at it this way, which is blended CAC. Mm -hmm. Or uh, companies do look at it as blended CAC, but not as channel CAC. Mm -hmm. So we kind of went through um, like the outbound and what it takes to get a 12-month payback or whatever. Um, but when you look between actually at the sources of where the revenue is coming from and you calculate CAC based on that, 
it becomes very interesting if you use that as how to determine where to grow from there. It also will pick out holes and where you could get better from a revenue generation standpoint. And so like if you look, most of the SaaS companies that I'll audit, it, their inbound channel CAC will be somewhere between three and six times less than their outbound channel CAC. Um, but they're still continuing to scale the outbound channel CAC when there might be a huge opportunity over here. So I just wanted to have you talk a little bit more about what you've seen there. Yeah, I see. Um, what I see, I, so right now I spend my time advising for about 17 mostly early stage SMB SaaS businesses. So we're talking about SaaS businesses that have raised the seed round or raised an A round usually. And just one thing, and this was actually really common in the beginning history of Patient Pop, was just not doing a really good job with attribution. So we had SDRs uh, qualifying inbound leads, um, taking white paper and content downloads, qualifying inbounds from our channel partners, making outbound phone calls, and we had this big sort of, in the very beginning, blended CAC. And like, that's what we looked at. And it was really, really difficult for us to understand where we were being most efficient in our business. And um, that, that is, number one, a problem. And I think what we really struggled with was multi-touch attribution. So if someone comes in and downloads an inbound piece of content, and then gets an outbound phone call and then goes to an event and then meets you in person and then gets a self-generated call in, in the office, where do you attribute that deal? And we, we really struggled with that. And so rather than try and figure out the sophistication of multi-touch attribution, which I think is really challenging, and I, I actually still to this day am not uh, super confident that we, we, we were gonna reach a, a really good way to do that, we just picked one and stayed consistent, which may not be the right piece of advice for every business, but we chose last touch attribution. So whatever happened last before the customer made the purchase, our sales cycle is about nine days, so, so hyper fast. And by choosing that attribution, we started to be able to separate where our stuff was coming from. Inbound, channel partner, reseller, outbound, self-generation. And then we were, start, we were able to start separating uh, the efficiency of our different channels and start to make some, some, better, some better calls. And oftentimes when I work with, with companies, I see them just sort of blending all of their spend uh, and all of their growth into one bucket and just calling it blended CAC. And to me, that just seems to be a way to not understand where to be most efficient. So we'll pivot a little bit because one of the questions got, that was asked is like, how do you, or Justin, you asked it, like how do you decide whether to continue to scale sales or continue to scale marketing? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the looking at the, from a CAC standpoint is one way. Um, I, I know Justin's business pretty well now and it's like, um, I know that there is so much room to go on the demand gens. I mean, from a revenue standpoint, like if you're looking at patient pop needing to be at 50 million before they, or 25 to 50 before the demand generation starts to plateau, mm -hmm. I would argue that if you continue to do marketing well, then you'll never see a, a plateau in demand generation. I think that companies talk that they, they need to go outbound to go to enterprise. I think if you do marketing really well, you get the enterprise to come to you. Mm. I think in, in general, you, if you do marketing well, more people will come to you. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on how to make that decision. I think it depends on your customer sometimes in your, in your product, right? So uh, oftentimes just wipe away like, wipe away the ACV, wipe away the sales cycle. Um, is your customer playing in a place online 
where they're active and where you can generate demand. And oftentimes, like for PatientPop, we had an active customer base. We had an active prospect base. There are one million practicing physicians in this country. And of those one million, 298,000 will spend $5,000 or more on online marketing for their practice. And so we knew that we had a relatively large pool of people to go after online. So we wanted to do that to, to the point where it was no longer efficient. Um, I work with some businesses today that don't have a, a prospect that leans in. They don't have a prospect that is uh, actively searching online, either because that's not what the, where the prospect plays, or because the solution is so new that prospects aren't actually online understanding that it's something they can look for. So to me, that is a, a really good and strong indicator for me of whether to go outbound or inbound. So when I'm working with companies that have a new uh, entry to a new market where uh, folks don't know how to search for that or don't know what they're looking for or don't know which keywords to select, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend outbound. If they have this really large 298,000 you know, physician group that are actively searching online to grow their practice, I'm going to recommend inbound. And for us, we saw a plateau. And um, you know maybe there's some other things that we could do to, to unlock that, that plateau, but um, we wanted to push that as far as we could go from an efficiency perspective. And so uh, when I left, I think in 2019, the marketing would have put together about 17 million of the 51 million in bookings that we did. Mm -hmm. So it was about 33% for us. And so if, if you wait for search traffic, to do paid ads or organic, or for someone to hit your site and retarget, that's like the common SaaS marketing model today, then yes, it's absolutely going to plateau. The way that you break through that is a, a, th a term called cold targeting, which is that I know that those people use Instagram. The people that you're selling to use Instagram. And so I go out and I find their job titles. Job titles are super clear. I ran this at this medical device company. It was nuts. Um, and so we're going after emergency medicine physicians, respiratory therapists, and, and ER nurses, okay? So I put those job titles into Facebook. Facebook also runs Instagram. And then we start pumping content paid to those people in order to create awareness, which then drives demand through the funnel. And so that's how you get it not to stop. Is it, I mean, it will stop eventually, um, naturally. But at some point, you have so much. Um, but we we started at five hundred dollars a month doing that, and I was pushing fifty thousand dollars a month in it. Twelve months later, and there was a lot of room left, and the and the results scaled linearly with the spend. And so that is that is um, I think one of the unlocks for people here. If there's one that that spend is a lot. So right, like we might be far away. Some companies might be there, but being able to go out and f get the people that are on the platform but aren't looking for you and showing them how to and getting them into a funnel to look for you is the, is the difference that I think a lot of people from a marketing standpoint could take away from tonight. Hmm. Is there a particular form or type of content marketing that you found most effective through that being? Yeah, so this goes, uh, all, almost everything that I do goes against conventional wisdom here. And so the there is no form. So I'm running paid to have someone click and read a case study and leave. Read a news article about this clinical trial that came out about our product and then leave. Because when they if, they, if they do consume it, and I know they do because I know that they have the right job title, and I can see on Google Analytics that they read it for two and a half minutes, and I know how long, how long that takes, 
that then that person is going to go tell three of their coworkers, and then one of their coworkers, and then you do that 10 times in a row, and then that conversation started internally, and the decision maker comes back on a desktop computer and converts on the form, but you have no attribution to what happened. But I know because we went from $500 to 50,000 a month, and I saw that exact same behavior pattern happen, that I know where it comes from now, and we continue to repeat that model at companies, the same thing happens. Sure, so you're also saying that you're not doing traditional remarketing no. Is that right? I, ha I have an audience, especially with most companies, if you have a well-defined ideal customer profile, it's not that large. And so instead, like, instead of remarketing to 1,000 people that visited your website, why don't you just hit all 100,000 of them? It's like $10 CPMs on Facebook. It's going to cost you $1,000 to hit all those people with every piece of content. Why not do it? Right. Yeah. I got nothing else to add. <laughs> that's above my head. I just try and close deals that come up. So that's above my head. Justin, involved in your experience, and again, everyone's experience is different. I'm a big fan. You took look. You always have a sales model and where you want. To go. I believe in waiting to show the product demo so you understand where they are, where they want to be, what they understand, what the pain points are. Yep. At what point did you show the demo, and how did you slow them down? for them to understand it's a benefit to them. Yeah. So we use a really different type of model <laughs> and methodology at Patient Pop. Um, I come from this like really hyper fast transactional background where you were doing a lot of one call closes. You were like literally getting someone on the phone for the first time, they were closing. And these are not like month to month contracts, these are annual, annual contracts. So they're committing, in the case of Patient Pop, $13,500 on an average deal, which is a lot to spend on one call. Now our average sales cycle was a little less than 10 days. That's pretty pretty darn fast. And I actually like, I love Challenger and I love gap selling and I love spin selling and all the different things. Um, but I'm a big fan of a methodology that we use called Pastor model, and it's actually a, a it's copywriting. It, yeah, it's copywriting by a guy named Ray Edwards, and he's a really great copywriter. He's like a really famous copywriter, and really good copywriting converts a lot of people. And so I tried to translate it as best as I could into a sales model. And Pastor stands for pain, amplification, story, transformation, offer, response. And so in my discovery, my goal was to discover pain uh, or lead them or ask enough questions for them to understand what their pain was or, or help them tell me more about the pain for their practice. Like, yeah, we're not coming up on page one of Google search results. That's not pain. The pain is that their number one competitor has recently moved from page two to page one and they're losing you know, 20 patients a month and a patient's, patient's worth $1,000 a year to their practice and so they're hemorrhaging $240,000 in lost patient revenue every year. That to me is pain. The A, which is amplification, is like how do you amplify that pain? How do you make that pain existential? So like I've worked for like fast growing or uh, fast velocity like SMB SaaS companies that don't sell like a revenue product. They sell an efficiency product. To me, that's harder to move through this system. It's got to be revenue generating and they have to feel the loss of money or they have to feel the uh, positive future of gaining money through using your solution. So it's pain and amplification. Then generally what I'll do is I will tell them the story of how our product works. How do we take them from the pain that they're feeling today to feeling no pain tomorrow? And then the T, which is transformation, is I show them someone exactly like them who is transformed. 
who went through the exact story that I just told and is now transformed, and then I simply make an offer. Here's my recommendation based on the customer that I just showed you, just like you and how they transformed, and then I ask for a response. And so that was like the pastor model that we put in place, and what we were able to do is generate so much existential pain and dread on the very first call, our second call, that we were able to move our sales cycles over time from 21 days down to you know 8.6 days. So that was the methodology that we used. Doesn't work in enterprise, doesn't work in mid-market, works really well at SMB SaaS, so. That's awesome. Yeah. Maybe not relevant, but one of the things, probably the best marketing move that we have right now kind of is aligned with that in some ways, which is just gen the transformational aspect. So finding a customer that's gone through a, tra a transformation, highlighting what that was. So blah, 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 you know, practice, um, you know, generates 300% revenue with patient pop. That's the headline. And then do the exact same cold targeting thing that I just talked about. Find all of the different um, people that are the exact people like them, run the ad on Facebook. The people that feel that pain will click through, they'll read it, and then they'll be able to talk to Justin. You can run them right through that. Yeah. <laughs> part of like part of what we use that works really well in our sales team, and you know, Kevin is here, he can attest to that. Sagar is here, he used to work work for us, and he can attest to this as well. Is we built a lot of tools that um, showed pain. So the whole purpose of our tools were to expose pain. And so to, to answer your question, when do we show the demo, we would run them through uh, a few different diagnostics tools and out the, out the bottom would spit pain, right? Where, what do your reviews look like across the different websites? Where are you ranked? What are your competitors ranked? How much money are you hemorrhaging? You know, what does Google think about your practice from a reputation standpoint? Like we spit out some pretty dreadful results and what I found was that once someone said, yeah, that's important to me, or yeah, that hurts really badly, I was ready to show them the demonstration. Then once we showed them the demonstration, they looked at us as experts. Well, you tell me what package I should buy. Well, here's my offer, and now you know, I'm wait awaiting your response. And so for us, that was just a really fast way to move people through the sales cycle and, and you know, double the amount of stuff we could do every month. Question, uh, Chris, you mentioned that uh, the man gen uh, works really well or could work well for, for enterprise. Um, just kind of curious, what have you seen kind of work in the enterprise space when you're dealing with like much longer sales cycles and potentially in industries where, where folks are maybe not as digitally savvy and things like that? Mm -hmm. I I, the answer is really simple. I think the answer is provide more value than anybody else to the people that you're trying to sell to. And so like right now for my company, we're closing $200,000 deals in four hours because the people have been watching the value that I've been providing for 90 days. And so like I know this can happen. Um, and so it's identify the audience and then figure out what's important to them to actually, that's actually important, not that's important, that you wish was important to them so they could buy your product. And so what's actually important to them, like the stuff here, I'm kind of talking about marketing, but mainly this is a sales thing because I know that CROs are gonna press people when, when their marketing team's not doing well to call me. So like I am here to provide value and I know that we're recording the video and I know I'm gonna put it on LinkedIn and I know 50 or 100,000 people are gonna see it and I know that's what's gonna happen. And so it's, it's how do you reverse engineer what those people want and then figure out how to give it to them and make it better than what anyone else has. 
And so we're doing that with Justin right now. They're starting a a video podcast with nonprofits. Um, This is a really interesting kind of um, way to approach it. They're interviewing like really successful, um, you can maybe elaborate on this because I don't fully know the strategy, but uh, uh, interviewing really successful nonprofits about fundraising or anything that they do. And then they're putting out that thing and they're getting nice consumption from it, which then creates awareness from other good nonprofits and then brings people in. Um, I think for you, it would be, who's, who are you selling to? Electric and gas. Who inside of it? People within their energy efficiency department. So program managers, um, directors, and then sometimes we'll go up to VP, SVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people with the budgets are typically kind of down the mm-hmm. So it would it's pick, pick the audience, and then I would go I would start some type of show, and I would go and ask those people if you could interview them. So actually, like interview some of those folks and then put those videos out there just through different channels, LinkedIn, and stuff. That's what I would do. Yeah. And Alex, I can just share this as a guy who bought software like at Patient Pop, right? We bought some pretty hefty software, like we bought Gong, we bought Sales Loft, and we paid. You know, I think over two hundred thousand dollars or over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for some of these softwares. Um, when I think about part of the reason that we purchased these really big pieces of software like Gong, is um, I didn't see a lot of their competitors where I was playing. Like, but I see Sarah Brazier and Chris Orlob and their whole sales team is just in my face every day, all day long, uh, writing huge eBooks, case studies, white papers, creating videos, podcasts, shows. Like you go online anywhere and you are, especially if you've been to the website, obviously, like they're just everywhere. And so when I was chatting with with KD, like early on, this might've been a couple years ago, we knew we needed coaching software. And like, we didn't think about Chorus. We thought about the thing that we saw every single solitary day, and that was them. And so that became a really easy purchase for us. I don't think we even looked at another vendor. So that, that to me is like an example of how I buy enterprise software. We, we consider that enterprise a pretty, pretty hefty expense. Um, that's just an example of like why that was so powerful and why that stuck in my mind is I just couldn't think of anyone else to buy. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the challenge with enterprise is that people want it to happen tomorrow. Uh, and if you want it to happen tomorrow, then go do outbound sales. And so, if you're if we're gonna if we're gonna do marketing, it's the idea is that when they recognize that they need someone like you, they choose you. They they don't think about anyone else. That's the goal. Um, and so, the way that you do that, I believe, is yes, by being relevant and and viewable. But it's the it's more inside than just having the logo show up. It's about being relevant and providing value, right? Like in some way, like that, right? Yeah. Like. Um, so that that would be my recommendation. It doesn't happen. It's overnight. I don't expect that you that you do that you want it to or that that you need it to based on like where you're going. So um, that that's a, a couple ideas. But I think the the long form content, like I would I would think about doing something like this. Like I actually I think that what we're doing right now is the best marketing move in B two B. Not because I'm trying to sell to any of you, but because I know we're going to create this great video and a hundred thousand plus people are going to see it and that's where we get the, the ROI. 
is on the content, not on the event. Everyone that's doing an event is measuring it on leads. And then the, us U20 would get handed off to an SDR and the SDR would call you all and it would annoy you because then you realize that we brought you here to sell you something, not to actually provide you value. And so that's one thing for like events that I see B2B SaaS vendors do wrong all the time. If they're gonna do something like this, it's either a product demo or they're gonna get put in some type of sales outreach later. Like the, if, I think if you're gonna do it, you do it for the content, not for the sales, because if you do the content well, it creates way more sales than people in here. Great, thanks guys. What you got, James? I mean, you, you came through my feed um, a few months back, and I was like, wow, this guy's actually producing quality content. I mean, like the, the content, obviously, you're providing a ton of value, but the, the cameras that you use and the, and the, the, the clips, it's not a, a selfie in the car, and you know, it's like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> you're not like, walking around with your AirPods. Like, on the morning run, like I was like, yeah, that's actually a really good one, by the way. It's just like, uh, I was like, wow, so I started following it, and I don't know, we're just shooting the breeze, and that's what I did. But I, I have gone socks on. Yeah. So, to your point, like, testament to all the things you just said, right? No, that's it's great. All over the place. Uh -huh. Like, they literally, mm -hmm. like, they, they, they understand it. And, and to your point, like, if you're getting these solid clips, I mean, I think there's 675 million people on LinkedIn. So if you get a good video that goes viral, and if so, one point on that, if you look back, probably like somewhere between eight and 10 months ago, if you look at my first video, it was the shittiest quality Zoom video that I've ever seen. And I got three likes on it. And so like uh, the, the point of saying that is like, you gotta start somewhere um, for everyone. Like we, we I, I believe in the model so much and we've seen the results of it that we're here, but we didn't like do it. I didn't just come up one day and be like, yeah, let's have these like massive, huge cameras here. Um, and so that's just kind of like a, a point of encouragement if you haven't done a video before that the quality is, the quality of the information is the most important thing at the beginning. You can figure out the, the quality of the production later. LG, we'll start with you. So earlier you mentioned that you know you've nurtured leads previously where they didn't go over to sales until you know, they were raising their hand like right now. As much as I would love to go to our CEO and CMO and suggest that, but realistically, like we have our team, you know, calling uh, uh, inbounds from like contact downloads, right? And mm -hmm. experiencing a lot of the pain currently that you described. Mm -hmm. you know, so what, where is that like middle ground between going from like a couple content downloads to like that ready to buy? Like, and from a sales leader perspective, like how can we work with the marketing team so that you know the lead score is such that they've gone through this path so we can find a happy middle ground there? Mm, I, I'm not sure I fully understand your question, but. So like you mentioned, you're not delivering leads to sales team until they're like ready to buy, right? Because the common goal is revenue, not necessarily XLs. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's the ideal goal. Mm -hmm. right? And I think realistically, you know, what we're experiencing at Ring DNA and probably most SaaS companies mm -hmm. is like we're delivering MQLs, you know, content downloads, mm -hmm. and our SDRs are calling on them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how, what's your advice on like how I can approach our CMO and CEO to create some sort of effective lead scoring system mm -hmm. where it's kind of a happy medium? Mm -hmm. 
content downloads and like we're ready to buy. Yeah. So the once the infrastructure is built the change be becomes harder over time. I, I recognize that. We're working with $35 million companies that have a lot of SDRs and 30,000 MQLs a year coming through. And if you just shut the faucet off, like it completely is gonna, it's gonna have a really big impact on the entire company, right? Um, and so I think that the, uh, th the approach that I'd recommend is like a, a blended transition because what you'll find and what I've always found is that if you get a hundred good demo requests, oftentimes you'll close more deals than if you have a thousand MQLs. And so, and, and we've, we've done this at companies, and so you get 100 good demo requests, you can route those directly to AEs, and the SDRs start going outbound to either contacts or sourcing their own stuff. And then over time, what's, what's going to happen, whether like it's good or not, is you're gonna shrink the size of the SDR team once the marketing keeps working well. Um, and I believe that most SaaS companies should converge on a full cycle AE model with a well-running marketing engine. Laura, one thing that we believed, um, and this, this is probably different than what other companies believe, um, but because we were able to shrink our sales cycle so quickly, and because we felt as though our sales team was really strong, like, if you ask anybody around here what, what kind of business patient pop is, it's a sales and marketing business, right? We had a huge sales and marketing engine. Um, and so we wanted folks who are mildly interested to chat with someone. So we took what, what was probably a reverse approach, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, if someone downloaded a piece of, piece of content, we wanted to get them on the phone. And so um, Jared and I came to an agreement together that based on our audience, and based on the velocity of our sales cycle, and based on the quality win percentage, our team w wins about 30% of deals, which I think is pretty, pretty darn good in SMB SaaS in, within nine days of spending 13,500 bucks to a totally uneducated audience of doctors. And so we wanted to give ourselves the best opportunity to hit our revenue targets. And so by, by talking to every single person, as fast as we could from the moment they touched any piece of content in our funnel, that allowed us to hit revenue targets. Now that is different from other businesses where you may need more stakeholders involved, they might just be kicking tires and doing some research. Like we knew that even if they were just starting to research for the very first time promoting their practice online, that we had a good enough story and a good enough product and a good enough team to give ourselves a 30% opportunity to close a deal. And so that's the approach that, that we took and it, it may not be the, the right approach for it. Completely opposite approaches, both work. Actually, a good segue um, off of this last question, your last comment. So, uh, we sell lawyers. Yep. In house counsel. The challenge is that you can't put anybody on a phone with them mm -hmm. because there's a high credibility threshold. Mm -hmm. If you get an attorney on the phone, which is hard to do, and they're not talking to somebody who they, they have respect for, mm -hmm. young, whatever it is, you lose on you like that. 100%. I would think doctors would be similar. Very similar. So I'm just curious, how did you how did you grow, select staff, team, train them? Like, what? Yeah. How did you bridge that? Yeah. So it's actually interesting because it'll probably be. Uh, make you even more nervous based on what you just described as like this young, shaky, nervous people, but we hired SDRs fresh out of college. 
And um, we found that once folks had habits from other businesses that were different than ours, it didn't work very well. And so we pulled nearly all of our SDRs straight out of school and we trained them in a very particular way. And I, I'm sure KD can probably add some color to this being, being the guy who you know, constructed this really successful org. Um, but we didn't want to sell the product the first time that we talked to the, the doctors. We never sold the product, we never ever sold the product. We sold the pain or we sold the meeting. That, that's what we sold from an SDR perspective. So they would download a piece of content around how to manage your reputation online, our SDRs would call as fast as they could, quick two minute to five minute SLA, get them on the phone, and it wasn't about all in one practice growth engine with these different modules, it was just like, did you know that for every star direction movement, whether you lost a star or gained a star, you either decrease or improve your gross revenue of your practice by five to nine percent? Like, would you like to learn more about how to do that, how our customers do that? That was like the whole sale. And they were confident and not shaky because they didn't have a whole lot to learn. They didn't have monster scripts, product deep dives. They knew exactly what their goal was and that was to sell the meeting. Okay, do you want to add any, anything onto that that would be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's where you educate that, right? What we tell our SDR is we don't know more about when private practice than a doctor, but we do know more about Was it Ken? Yeah. Ken, um, one thing that we found is when we gave them a lot of product knowledge, like a product deep dive, being young and inexperienced, they were more likely to talk about that. And as soon as they talked about that, they got into a product that they couldn't fully understand. They got into a big discussion with a physician about you know, practice revenue and things that they felt out of their, their comfort zone in, and that's when the nerves and the shakes started. So equipping them with like minimum viable information to have a successful conversation was, was basically our, our, our go-to-market with, with the SDRs. <laughs> if that makes sense. This does, I get it. Yeah. Justin, you had a question? Uh, something Justin said earlier about uh, how you guys chose like the last touch as like yeah. attribution. Yeah. How did you actually use the, the attribution? Yeah, it's a bad answer. Like in in multi multi touch attribution is hard. Like I don't I don't ever walk into a company and, and maybe like there's a company in this audience that can confidently say they do multi touch attribution really well. And if that's true, I would love to learn more about it. Um, but I haven't walked into a company that says like, you know what our customers do? They download a white paper and then 48 hours, they generally hit our, our inbox and then usually we see them within two weeks at a conference. Like, I just haven't been able to find a company that does that. So we, we wanted to try and get it as close to as right as we thought we could and we decided after much negotiation between sales, marketing, executives that we were gonna go with last touch. 
and we just wanted to be consistent about it. So if we were gonna measure last touch attribution this quarter, we didn't wanna to switch to first touch attribution next quarter and then try to move to a blended attribution the following quarter, so we kept it consistent and we made our decisions off of that because we believed that last touch had the most impact on close rates. And so by, by doing that, we tried to build most of our budgets around that. I, I agree with, uh, well, sorry. You got the point of clarity. Yep. I agree with the way to look at at last touch. We would just call it I, I call it op source. It's like what what was the trigger that created the opportunity, right? Was it an outbound call? Was it an inbound download form? I think the place where it gets messy is trying to look inside of a a marketing channel for last touch. Like if if it if it's coming inbound and it came through organic search, that's probably not what actually generated it. Um, in my, if it came through AdWords, it may not, AdWords may not have been what drove it. It might have been a, you know, them talking to a friend or, um, or them seeing one of your social ads, but they didn't click on it and they went and searched it in Google. There's a lot of different ways. So I think um, from a marketing standpoint, um, last touch is a, is a dangerous way to look at it. But for this, for, for opportunity source, I think, I actually think it's just, it's simple. Um, I agree that I think it has the most impact on close rates is that is, is last touch. Um, and that's how we do it too. We also had two junior sales analysts that looked at every deal. So um, if you read a lot of articles around like being really crisp and clean about your attribution, they suggest that your, your junior sales analysts, which we had a team of two, they went through and spot check deals, right? They wanted to make sure that it was properly attributed to the best of their knowledge. And so that helped us be a little bit more accurate. Cool. Uh, my question changed three times during that conversation. <laughs> Which is awesome. No, the, the right answer is there is no right answer yeah. to the business. I love your transparency on, I don't know, this is the best. The best thing I took is stick to something and be consistent. Be consistent. So one of my questions is, how do you avoid pissing off a 23-year-old BDR who's been working in an account in their territory, and then they meet someone at a trade show. The reality is they're aware of the branding because of it. And then Kevin, you hit it on the head where, I've always given a window of whether it's 15, 30, or 45. They demonstrated in Salesforce, if it doesn't happen there, it doesn't happen at all. Uh, if there's engagement and they go to a trade show, then hell yeah. But I think the common denominator is it falls outside of that. Mm -hmm. Be consistent with your average. Totally. Anything you measure, just make sure you measure it consistently. <laughs> like even even if it's not, you're not like 100% confident that that's the like that's what led to the deal. At least you're at least you're doing it consistently. Mm -hmm. May not be the right answer, but like we just couldn't figure out how to do multi-touch attribution really well. We really struggle with it. We got a question about LinkedIn. You guys are both awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I see a lot of is that. Uh, reps, individual contributors, they're trying to emulate, I'd say, guys like you and others out there that are kind of 
gurus, for lack of a better uh, term, and they're trying to give life advice and business advice. Advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, we all know this doesn't really work, right? When you yep. scale it to that level. Uh, you answered it a little bit as you talked about Sarah Zero with Gong and some of that stuff, but I'm sure the audience that's going to watch us would love to hear any like tactical advice you have for. I'm a sales rep. Uh, I work at you know any of these companies here. Yep. So what does my content actually look like when I step out and uh, start this? Place? If if I were a sales rep at a company. Um, I would talk about some of the things that Chris was alluding to earlier about when he was having the conversation with Alex. Like, if I was a sales rep and I was selling to physicians, and I was at Patient Pop and I was an individual contributor, I would be creating interesting content that was focused on helping physicians add value to their practice and grow their practice on a regular basis. And I would do that every day. And um, what I've found in, you know, without giving people's names so that you don't poach them, uh, a lot of our, our best salespeople, um, yes, they got inbound leads, yes, they made outbound phone calls, but they posted a lot of really good stuff on LinkedIn that was helpful to physicians. And when they actively reached out to a physician that they were connected with and asked for a demonstration, they were often met with very little resistance. And so I think, um, the reason that I believe in it is because to me, it's still a, an early stage channel for getting really good one-to-one -one connection. And so the way that I think about it from a sales rep perspective is we all ignore emails. We all get 1,500 emails and we ignore them. And if somebody, if one of you emails me and I ignore it, it's like, ah, sorry, I went to spam, right? Sorry, I've, uh, I got really busy. But if you text me, and I ignore it, then it's like, I'm a different kind of guy. If I ignore your text message, to me, LinkedIn still feels like that and other social channels still feel like that to prospects. So if I were a salesperson trying to reach prospects, it would be a, a place that I would, I would play a lot in and communicate a lot in. So I don't know if that's helpful, yeah. but that's how I think about it. I, I, so your question directly is if I was an individual contributor rep, right? Correct, because everyone's kind of going the route of I'm going to give business advice to everybody, life advice, yeah. and build my personal brand because I saw Justin Walsh. Yeah. So um, I, I know there's a better way for that, and you guys are probably this, so I just probably I think everyone needs to make um, make a choice on LinkedIn about whether they're doing it for themselves or whether they're doing it for their customers. And either way is fine, honestly. There's a lot of sales reps that post about sales content and, or things they know in sales, and eventually they're going to get a better sales job because of that, right? So that that works for them. But if you're if you're a sales rep trying to sell stuff to physicians. Posting sales advice is not going to help you achieve that outcome, right? And so I think that that's one um, that's one choice that people need to make up front. Um, you can change later, um, but that's something that I, I I think is one that people should do. Um, and then the other one that I would say is to if to either talk about things that you know or to interview people that know. Those are the two, the two ways, especially if you're selling to physicians and you don't know, like I'd go interview physicians and I'd post the Zooms, right? Because I, I might not know what, how to do a procedure or whatever it is, right? When I ran uh, demand gen and marketing at a company called Vapotherm, like we were selling to neonatologists. I had no idea what was going on in a NICU, but I could get four 
expert neonatologists in a room during a conference and have them talk about a topic for four hours and film it and cut it up and then use that as the information. So if we go onto the road where it's like, okay, so I should be talking about what I know, that also evolves. At the beginning, when I was on LinkedIn, I was talking about how to run Facebook ads. Like I still talk about them, but like the, the stuff that I've talked about has been changing um, because I've been testing. Like I post things, so a lot of things I post to see if it would work. Like it's kind of trying to like really figure it out. Um, so I started talking about sales a little bit and people start to respond like because some of the ideas that I introduce are unique. And so, yeah, I'm not, I don't know if that's helpful, but those are some of the things that go through my, yeah. So if you, um, you talk about, let's say, interviewing people that have something meta experts that you want to get basically out there. So how do you motivate those people to come and interview you? What kind of techniques are you using? I usually just message them. <laughs> I, but there's no, there's no special catch up people. They're, they're, generally are. It, it usually helps. There's a couple things that help. One, if they already are aware of you. So like it was a lot easier for me to ask Justin to do this then it might have been for you, no offense, but like it might have been easier for me to ask him than you because he, he's aware of me and we had a conversation like what, six months ago, it was a while ago, but like he knew me. So having someone be aware of you or the company that you work for can be really helpful in a way to get there. The second one is to, when, you, when you're interviewing someone, to name the show based on what they think would be cool to be on. So um, if I was, if I didn't know Justin and I wanted it, I, I would start this, you know, B2B SaaS, SMB SaaS sales experts podcast and I want him to be the first guest. And if I send that email on that message on LinkedIn, I'd say most of the time he's going to say yes. And so that's another way that I would, could frame it up. It's, we, we just asked our happy customers. Like what, what we found is that most of our customers were really pleased with our results. And also like, especially in, when I describe doctors as an uneducated audience, I obviously do not mean that they're uneducated, right? But they are um, not spending their time doing um, content, being on video, being interviewed on podcasts. Like that's, that's all new to them. That's, that's generally not their, not their, their thing. So um, giving them an opportunity to share how great their practice has grown, how many new patients come to their practice every day, like to be able to tell that story, they tell it really emphatically and they tell it much differently than I tell it. When I tell it, I am trying to make a sale. And so people can see that. But when doctors tell it, they're beaming with pride and they're talking about how great their practice is and they're tethering that to the fact that they made a, they made a purchase called Patient Pop. And so we had physicians that wanted to get, you can see it every week on LinkedIn, we do a, a show where we interview physicians and they, in their practice and they talk about the growth they're seeing from our, from our platform and that drives a lot of, a lot of traffic for, for our salespeople. So to me, that's a great, great way to do it. I was just going to say to your point, when I was at DocuSign, they were like a year away from becoming a uh, you know, publicly traded company. And I believe at the time we had like 13 of the 15 largest financial institutions you know, as uh, customers. And those customer testimonials are invaluable. You know, I would send those out as part of a cadence and I would say like, yeah, this is so-and-so from Bank of America. And maybe I'd be calling out a smaller bank, like Bank of Albuquerque or something. And um, I, I would, you know, 
preface that you know Bank of America we can come in with a custom or sorry a custom tailored solution you know based on a smaller bank and I think I think that that's that's huge like don't don't take my word for it take this person's word for it and then you can like I said you know meet in the middle on a, on a custom tailored solution so I think customer testimonials are invaluable I just recently came from a company that unfortunately didn't have any customer <laughs> yeah well I'm kill you. You brought it up numerous times to the director of marketing how um, invaluable I feel they are, but that was um, met with fall on deaf ears. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you can get them, you're, you're going to be in a better position than if you can't. So mm-hmm. um, that, to me, I just asked. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. Ex- experts or actually anyone just loves to share stuff about them. So if you just invite them to share those things, usually it works. And how do you start with, let's say, because you mentioned your first uh, video that you made was basically shit in terms of quality, but how do you start with a setup which is reasonably well, but still doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't cost you a fortune? Is there, is there the kind of sources that you know that you can... I, I went on Zoom, somebody interviewed me on a podcast, I recorded the Zoom, I got the captions on Rev for $3, I had one of my buddies edit the thing, but you can there's online tools that you could do it yourself. It cost me $3 to make the first video, um, and like I said, the, the information matters more at the beginning than the quality of the production. If you put out good information, then you'll see the response that then gives you the, the confidence to continue to invest in it. And that's kind of like anything that you're doing, right? Like um, if you're lifting weights, you're not gonna go and lift a million pounds right away, right? You're gonna start with five and five works and you go up a little bit. And that's, I think that's kind of like the approach that I would recommend. Any last questions? Anything to close? No, I think, um, you know, to me, like the way that people are, are buying, I'm finding is just changing. And uh, it's been really interesting to step back and recognize how much of a consumer I am and start to think about why I buy the stuff that I buy. And oftentimes when I'm trying to think about marketing or sales, I'm starting to think way more about that kind of stuff. And, you know, for example, like using the, using the gong example, I, I mentioned this in conversation the other day. Um, I don't know if half the stuff that I see online is really good or really bad, right? I, I watch someone being interviewed and I watch Chris from Gong creating case studies and eBooks and white papers and I see him. So my association of him is that he's an expert. That's what I think. I believe that he's an expert. Behind closed doors, Chris at Gong may not be an expert. I assume that he is, and I think that he is, but simply by capturing my attention on a regular basis and by seeing consistent, relevant content, I believe that he's an expert. And so when I go to buy something, I am most likely to buy from him. And I have just tried to be very cognizant of how I've been buying and trying to use that in businesses like, like Patient Pop. And that's why you probably see, you, you see me online, you see Kevin, and you see Derek, and you see Jesse, and you see a bunch of people that we work with. It's not because we like it. I mean, we do, we have fun with it, don't get me wrong. But we recruit. <laughs> like, people want them to work there because they saw us and they, we became regular faces and they wanted to come be an SDR, be an AE, we were selling. That was, that was our audience was 
you know, kids graduating from UCLA and USC and Loyola Marymount. So I just very much believe in the power of, of content marketing. And, um, you know, I didn't know Chris from, from Adam. Like, we just connected and we've been keeping up conversation. And I'm thinking, you know, Chris seems like he knows what he's talking about. He seems like a really sharp marketing guy. But I don't know. I don't. I haven't worked with him. But then I, I, I know Justin. We, he's a, a the CEO of a Toba portfolio company, which also invested in Patient Pop. I jump on the phone with him, or we're just chatting, and he said, "Oh my gosh, you know, Chris has five x our, our marketing revenue." And it's like, you know, pretty soon you you start to realize that uh, a lot of these folks are, but some of them aren't. And so, for me, it's just getting my mind share has been really interesting. And so all the stuff that we try and produce, we're trying to get mind share. So that was like my, my final thought on combining sales and marketing and some of the questions around social media and things like that. That's how I think about it. If that makes sense. When I, um, I have one like a little bit to close. So sure. in, in like 2015, I made a decision that creating content was the most important thing in any business. I, I, do, be, I do believe that. Um, aside from the quality of the product, creating content and knowing how to distribute it, I think is the most important thing. You can build businesses in different ways, but I think that's the easiest and most efficient way to do it. So I started creating, I started creating content and understanding the impact and it takes a long time to learn. But at this point, like I practice what I preach. Like we have, we have good cameras, we do these things. Um, and I continue to learn how how impactful it is as we implement it at companies that are not doing it or, or are not doing it in the right way. Um, and so I, I would just leave that it, right at the moment, the most important thing that you can do is communicate with customers and prospects. And the most effective way to communicate with them is by generating content and distributing it to them online. And how frequently and how efficiently and how, um, how well can you do that, I think is really the difference between um, how fast you can grow. Appreciate it.